Hello, and welcome aboard another episode of the Gallant Says Podcast. I am Paul Gallant. Thank you so much for subscribing, rating, reviewing. And if you haven't already, you can do it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. You can even watch it on YouTube and watch my eyebrows dance. On today's episode, I'm going to talk to my good friend from 710 ESPN Seattle, Stacy Rost, about the Seahawks' upcoming game against the Arizona Cardinals and a guy in Seattle sports who got robbed. We're also going to talk a lot of baseball on today's episode, Friday, November 19th, 2021. And while most people feel like whenever I'm talking about baseball, I'm talking out of my ass, I think I've got some strong takes. Let's go. A radio show host in Seattle called Paul Gallant. I was just kind of curious what Paul gets to see. You are definitely living in the hindsight world today, Paul. I gotta grow up, motherfucker. Are you kidding me? Paul Gallant, what the hell is wrong with you? Before we get to some of those baseball takes, though, I wanted to thank you. I wanted to thank everyone who has been there for me over the past year and a half. It hasn't been easy. We've gone through so much. And there have been so many things that we once thought to be true that all of a sudden weren't. But I've got some good news for you. Everything's getting better. In fact, it's finally over. What am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the return of the New England Patriots to being the team that I expect to win every single fucking week. They are back. Oh my God, that was a beautiful performance on Thursday against the Atlanta Falcons, much like their dominant victory over the Cleveland Browns on Sunday. Was also impressive. The defense is playing great. Mac Jones is as efficient as you could possibly ask for. Their running backs are fantastic. We'll get into more about how the Patriots got back to being who they are later on in the show. But I'm just so thankful that you all were there to watch me Ponder my own existence, the meaning of life, if this world even mattered anymore when the Patriots went through a 7-9 and nine season. It wasn't easy. You know, a lot of fan bases, it's just different. You have lower expectations because, well, to be quite honest, your team suck. And there's nothing better than being the person who is on top of the mountain, sitting down, and looking below and laughing at all the poor idiots beneath him who are stuck rooting for teams in the city where their parents decided to have sex. They might be stuck rooting for the Detroit Lions. They might be stuck rooting for the Atlanta Falcons or some other hapless piece of shit football team. I don't have that problem, but for a year and a half, I mean, it was hard. Seven and nine, you know, like it was difficult. There were moments where I thought to myself, what's the point of watching sports if my team isn't winning every single game? But now everything's back to normal. I can get back up on my high horse in my ivory tower and look down at all these plebes. Okay, now I'll be serious. There's nothing better than being the fan of a villainous team. And I don't think everybody knows exactly quite how to do it. Yankee fans, Duke fans, Lakers fans, Patriots fans, Astros fans. You got to really embrace your inner villain. It's fun. 
you get to say to other fan bases that they are just wasting their time. They don't matter. They're irrelevant. And obviously, there will, there will be some moments where this team that you root for ends up getting the shaft. You know, like the Seahawks in Super Bowl Forty Nine. These are things that happen. But for the most part, they don't. <laughs> and you get to sit back and you get to cackle and you get to look at all these other teams that are trying to figure their shit out. But a lot of fans of these teams, even though they're enjoying themselves, they have this obsession with wanting to be liked. And I'll say, there are a lot of Patriots fans out there who don't understand why they're not loved across the country. Astros fans, same thing. I don't get that. If you root for a team like this, you get to talk shit nonstop. And no one could ever have a reasonable comeback to you. Yeah, it does get old after a while if you're a Yankees fan saying 27 rings or if you're a Patriots fan saying <laughs> six rings. But you should do it that way as opposed to feeling like you're, like you're being persecuted. Patriots fans, Astros fans. I mean, here's what you say. You say, yeah, my team cheated and got away with it. Sucks to be you, huh? My team cares about me. Maybe your team should think about cheating. I like being the fan of a villainous team. I try not to be as insufferable about it as the majority of my mass old brethren. I know in that moment right there, I totally was that guy. But being a condescending, obnoxious, elitist sports fan of a team that's better than everybody, there's nothing quite like it. And I hope that all of you get to experience it at some point in your lifetime. I think that most people know I'm not the biggest fan of baseball for a bunch of different reasons. There's too many games. The games are really long and slow. On top of that, there's a lot of fatties who are successful in the sport, and I'm not going to lie, it annoys me. This is a me problem, a jealousy problem, but I hate it when people that are in worse shape than me are better than me at a particular sport. Drives me crazy. Bartolo Colones, I hate seeing him out there. Hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it. But I'm a weirdo. Another thing that annoys me about baseball, at least over the last couple of years, has been that you see far too many MVPs with this commonality. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim have had two MVPs on their team over the past decade. Mike Trout, who's won a couple. And now Shohei Otani, who's the 2021 American League MVP. Meanwhile, the National League MVP is Bryce Harper with the Philadelphia Phillies. I love both of these players. I think Shohei Otani is the best thing to happen in, to baseball in a really long time. He is an unbelievable power hitter with a beautiful swing. And the guy can pitch. I mean, he's a novelty. Then, Bryce Harper is a guy who I like because he's a bit of a hardo in a bro-y way. And I also think that he's a great player. So this is not taking away from what those two were able to do this year. But the award most valuable player, don't you think it should go to somebody who plays for a team that matters? I guess that you'd be punishing Shohei Otani and Bryce Harper for not giving them an MVP trophy after a season like this. But the Angels were eight games below 500. They were 18 games out of first place. 
Shohei Otani, I'm sure he's good. You can show me his wins above replacement or his, I don't know, Klongdorp or some other stupid advanced statistic that will show me, yeah, I mean, he made a huge difference on his team. How much of a difference did he really make? And I guess this goes back to the point that baseball is more of an individual sport, which is something else that I guess rubs me the wrong way. I do like baseball's playoffs, by the way, side note. Um, But back to this. It's an individual sport, and I feel like in the individual award side of things, the idea of team is entirely thrown out the window. And this isn't fucking golf or tennis. It's a team sport. Bryce Harper's Phillies were two games above 500. How valuable really were they? I know someone called this a boomer take. I know it sounds like a boomer take. But neither of those two players played in a meaningful game over the course of that season. Look, baseball's long season... I suppose that you do want to have some landmarks when you look back in history about who played really well over the course of a year. And that's what the MVP award is for. But couldn't you tell the story of the 2021 baseball season without both of those guys? Because ultimately, they're not in the most important part of the baseball season, which is baseball's playoffs. Baseball's playoffs matter so much more than the regular season. Especially now that they are expanding the playoffs. Five teams make it. We could see 14, five teams make it per league. We could see 14 teams, seven teams total per league making it by the time the next collective bargaining agreement is struck. And I feel like even though we're talking about who's the best player in the sport, regardless of what team they're on, that the most valuable player in the sport, and we're getting into semantics and the idea of what the word valuable means, should be playing for a team that actually fucking matters. Phillies don't matter. Angels don't matter. They didn't matter this year. They were afterthoughts. When I go back in time and I look at the 2021 baseball season, am I going to be thinking about Shohei Otani? Or am I going to be thinking about the Atlanta Braves who overcame an injury to one of their best players and still ended up winning the World Series? Or the Astros doing what the Astros did over the course of the year? And I suppose that there's no one individual performance from either of those teams that you could point to and say that's an MVP-worthy performance. But we got to change the name of the award in baseball. Because, I mean, the Angels have two MVPs. I know Mike Trout barely played this season. What has that done for them? Wouldn't every single team across baseball kill to have at least one MVP caliber player? What's it done for them? Not a whole lot. So it's all based in the meaning of the word valuable, a totally subjective award. Excuse me, a totally subjective um, uh, word. Uh, Our our good friend, Luke Arkins, my baseball consigliere, he tweeted a uh, BBWAA baseball Writers Association of America criteria for the MVP award. And it reads as follows. There is no clear cut definition of what most valuable means. It is up to the individual voter to decide who was the most valuable player in each league to his team. The MVP need not come from a division winner or other playoff qualifier. So that little sentence right there puts everyone on the table. Erase that sentence. And I know the Baseball Writers Association of America is going to put their glasses on. They're going to raise the glasses up. 
the bridge of their nose and say, <laughs> Paul, you don't know anything about baseball. I'm a historian of the game. But, I mean, those guys don't matter. Again, they don't matter. They played for lost causes. And I feel like in giving an MVP award to a guy on the Angels or a guy on the Phillies, you're rewarding mediocrity. If it's a team sport, there's got to be some sort of team element that's attached to the award. And in the NFL, quarterbacks only win the award. But generally, those quarterbacks are leading their team to the playoffs. Because that's what happens when you have a great quarterback. Okay, you affect everything that happens on the field. Basketball, the best player in the sport, is generally going to be bringing his team on his back into the playoffs. I'm sure he has a little bit of help, though. Heisman Trophy winner, it's usually the best performer on the best team. This sport, though, is different. And I hate that it's different. Maybe I should just accept that it's different, but no, fuck that. I, I just don't like that the award goes to guys who play for teams that don't matter. Uh, as you go through the criteria for the MVP award, um, the rules of the voting are the same since 1931. Parameter one, actual value of a player to his team, that is strength of offense and defense. And a couple of people have tweeted in correctly, okay, well, what would the Angels have been without Shohei Otani? Someone, uh, Ryan, tweeted at me, the Angels win 60 this year if they don't have Shohei Otani. Uh, Steve tweeted in, imagine how much worse they'd be without them. I mean, a little bit, but like, they're going to go from a sub-500 baseball team to a further sub-500 baseball team. Who cares? That's at least the way I look at it. And maybe I'm focusing too much on the elites in baseball in a sport that definitely has become the 1% and the have-nots. I mean, in the playoffs, things get equalized a little bit, but during the regular season and going into every single year, you know who's going to be good and you know who's going to suck. The Orioles are going to suck every year, and the Yankees, Red Sox, Dodgers, Astros at least now, and other teams, they're going to be good because they have more money than God. Cardinals are probably going to be good too. I feel like those guys who win the MVP award should come from teams that are good. And I made this joke to Lou Gargans. I mean... As you go through the criteria of the MVP award, two, number of games played, three, general character, disposition, loyalty, and effort. I mean, how much character does Mike Trout have when it comes to caring about winning, given that he voluntarily signed a contract for $400 million with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, of California, of the United States of America, of North America, formerly of Pangea, of planet Earth? What do you think is going through his mind every single year? Money, 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 or wanting to win? And I'm kidding here. I'm just trying to find a way to make it so that Mike Trout doesn't win another MVP so that a bunch of people won't remind me, yeah, but his war is 5,000 and his Klondorp is 793.2222 repeating, of course. You know, like that that stuff. I, I'm just, just tired. Just tired of seeing that. And I feel like we got to give guys the MVP if they played on one of the better teams. Like, at least make the playoffs, right? It's getting easier and easier to do it in baseball now. Neither of these teams were close. This is a me thing. I hope that you at least heard me out and will think about it going forward. I know that the BBWA A is not listening. This happens all the time. <laughs> all the time. Why? 
While I'm on the BBWAA's case, can someone please explain to me how Kevin Cash won the American League Manager of the Year Award and Scott Service didn't? Is this baseball's new strategy to get people to talk about it because the rewards were so shittily given out? Whether it's MVPs to guys who don't play for teams that matter, or it's a guy in Kevin Cash who actually won the fucking award last year. Before, well, check that. He won it after one of the worst decisions that we've ever seen by a manager where he pulls Blake Snell from a World Series game when Blake Snell was dealing and the Rays promptly collapsed, ultimately losing the World Series to the Dodgers. An asterisk, of course, next to that title for the Dodgers that wasn't a real season and every single team made the playoffs, but you get where I'm coming from. Kevin Cash won Manager of the Year after that moment. Understandable to an extent. I mean, if you are... The Rays, you have to go about things in a different way. You're poor. You don't have a lot of funds to work with. You got to go the money ball route and then some. But unlike the A's, who have never done anything under Billy Bean, other than winning 20 games in a row and having a movie made about that for some reason, the Rays got to a World Series that year. I know that the Manager of the Year award is supposed to be for something that probably takes place in the regular season, but... Given some of the things that the Rays do that are unconventional, I get it last year, even though he, of course, fucked it all up in the World Series. But how the hell did he win it again this year? He should be barred from winning that award forever after what happened in the World Series. I mean, to me, that fuck-up was a lot like the mess-up that Grady Little did back in 2003, manager of the Red Sox, leaving Pedro Martinez in the game seven against the New York Yankees too long, ultimately seeing Pedro collapse, and the Yankees win the game in extra innings. They go on to the World Series. The Red Sox curse continues. The only difference is that Kevin Cash has, what, an American League Championship Series trophy? Got to the World Series? But they still both made terrible decisions. Grady Little got fired for that. Kevin Cash instead goes into next year, and he has the best record. In the American League with the Tampa Bay Rays in a very difficult American League East, the Yankees and the Blue Jays were hovering around all season long. And of course, the Yankees and the Red Sox, they make it. They play in the wild card game. The Red Sox win the wild card game. And then the Red Sox took out the Rays pretty easily. And I think about the Red Sox taking out the Rays pretty easily. And I think... Okay, well, I mean, how good of a job did Kevin Cash really do? Meanwhile, look at Scott Service. The Mariners couldn't hit this year. If you need some data to back that up, I'll give it to you. They were dead last in batting average. 28th in OPS. 26th in slugging. 22nd in runs. Oh, but their pitching must have been really good. Eh. 16th in team ERA. 13th and walks, hits, innings, pitched. And yet, the Mariners won 90 games somehow and were two games out of the wild card at the end of the year, despite having one of the worst offenses in baseball. What is it that managers do? They, of course, put a lineup out. They make defensive substitutions when necessary in the middle of a game. But probably the most important thing that they have to do is determine when they are going to pull a starting pitcher from a game. And that's where you get to the bullpen numbers across all of baseball. 
The Mariners, if you want to take a look at it, whether it's wins above replacement or it's FIP, which is an actual advanced statistic, fielding independent pitching, they're number three with both of them. Yeah, so bullpen is dependent on the arms that are in said bullpen, but an effective bullpen also has a guy that is holding the reins that knows when is the right time to pull a starter, that knows when is the right time to leave a starter in, that knows when it's the right time to put in pitcher X, Y, Z. And remember, this is a Mariners team that traded one of its best relievers midway through the year. The bullpen didn't fall off a cliff. A lot of people thought it would. So those are just the things that are taking place over the course of the year. But then factor in some of the other things that we have seen, courtesy of Scott's service. This is a guy who got that Mariners team through a year where they experienced countless injuries. I mean, right from the start, James Paxton. They're missing Kyle Lewis for the majority of the season. Justice Sheffield had issues. Justin Dunn had issues. They had to, after that Kendall Graveman trade, reconvene, recenter, refocus, because it seemed like the clubhouse was having a giant pity party for itself, at least based off of one of the articles that came out from Ryan Davis in the Seattle Times. I mean, it didn't look great. They're professionals as a young team and it maybe felt like a family atmosphere and this is the first time that they're going to see faces leave over the course of a year. But I mean, the Graveman trade did get net them Abraham Toro. I think it ends up being a pretty good trade, at least based off of what we have seen in year one. Now, Kendall Graveman, he's a free agent. We'll see where he goes next. Um, but he had to get them to recenter and refocus when it felt like they hated the front office more than they did going into the year when... At a Bellevue Rotary Club breakfast, you get Kevin Mather just blabbing bullshit, boom roasting every single person in the Mariners organization, and he's got to deal with that fallout too. There are so many things that the Mariners overcame this year, whether a lineup that doesn't, doesn't hit or just off-the-field things as crazy as... Kevin Mather basically saying, yeah, we knew we didn't have to pay this guy X. We could get away with not re-signing this because this guy, because he'd come back hat in hand. I think they're talking about Taiwan Walker there. They got through all of that. And while I do think that a manager's place compared to coaches in the NFL, coaches in the NBA, it's, it's not as important. There is still value to be had in that job. And service did, I think, the best job in the American League this past year. I am biased 100%, but you gave it to Kevin Cash after he won it last year. How does that make any sense? I don't think it does. I figured I better touch on this before he ends up signing elsewhere, but you say Kikuchi isn't coming back to the Seattle Mariners this year. They turned down the Mariners, a four-year, $66 million option on him after... The guy was pulled from the starting rotation down the stretch. And then Yusei Kikuchi declined his one-year $13 million player option. So they're both going their separate ways. Yusei Kikuchi showed a lot of signs early in 2021 that he may be finally reaching his potential. 
But the second half of the year, it didn't go so well. First 16 starts, a 3.48 ERA. He had an all-star appearance. But you were starting to see some cracks right before the all-star game that he didn't actually pitch in. And his ERA at the end of the year is 4.41. It was a rough second half for him. I'm not sure what led to the change in the way that he pitched. And I know that those who follow Kikuchi more closely than me will bring up that he's a guy that constantly is tinkering with his pitches. But there was this specific at-bat where you say Kikuchi was going up against Aaron Judge with the New York Yankees. And I described it on 710 ESPN Seattle when I was working there multiple times as deferential. That was a polite way to describe what I felt was going on. And then something happened. It was a Friday night. I was at the Mariners ballpark and I was made aware of a tweet that uh, came from... A Mariners blogger in town. This, the Mikey. LOL got into my car and 710 is on from listening to the game last night. And they're talking about how Kikuchi has struggled because he's deferential to hitters. Your racially coded language sucks. He tagged Danny. He tagged me. I thought to myself when I saw this tweet, what the fuck, huh? Because to me, when I was calling him deferential, that was a polite way of saying he's scared. He was scared to go up against Aaron Judge. I suppose we can have a conversation about whether or not that's racially coded language, but should we? Clearly, that's not the intent. I mean, if we're being honest, we're having a conversation amongst friends and we're talking about a pitcher or a quarterback who's unwilling to thread the needle, who is not willing to challenge a batter. What are we going to call him? I'm just going to pause right now. What are the words that are going to go through your head? And I'm sure a lot of them are going to be, well, rather pointed and probably call out the guy's manhood. Deferential, I thought, was the best word to say on the air considering we have a relationship with the Mariners. And I didn't want to seem mean. But he was scared. Had I said scared, how would things have gone? Now, I'm someone who is willing to listen to somebody when they have a differing viewpoint than me. But when you come out of it swinging like that and you're calling things racist right away, that's when I decide to usually ignore. In years past, those who listened to me in Houston probably remember that I would come back swinging very hard and heavy. I'm a little older, a little more mature. Uh, this person, by the way, dunked on me after I got fired, saying maybe uh, at your next stop you won't double down on making racist stereotypes about Asian players, dweeb. Mm, looking at your profile pic, homie. Um, takes one to know one, I guess. Uh, then he had the clown emoji in there. The guy's scared to throw against good batters. 
I mean, what am I supposed to call him instead of, of deferential? You want me to call him a pussy? And I mean like a scared, skittish cat, not the other definition. Chicken? Coward? I mean, all of those words are, I think, appropriate ways to describe his style of pitching against good batters. Should I have done that instead? And I would have heard this conversation. I, I guess there is a stereotype about Asian men being deferential. And you know what? Had you brought it up politely, I would have listened to it. I would have thought about it. And I probably would have gone away from it going forward. But you did it like that. And I'm like, how is that racially coded? It's racially coded in your mind because you're trying to make it something that's racially coded. But it wasn't when it was coming out of my mouth. No, <laughs> not at all. You could say that I was deferential in this situation. And, you know, regardless of your race, if you aren't challenging good hitters, you're scared. You need to challenge good hitters in this league if you are a good pitcher, especially if you're an all-star pitcher. You say Kikuchi did not. Joining me right now on the Galan Says podcast is the co-host of Jake and Stacy on 710 ESPN Seattle. You can hear it every single morning afternoon from 10 to 2. She's also my BFF. It's Stacy Ross. What's up, Stacy? Hi. Yeah, Paul. Why was the high so long and pronounced? It just felt right in the moment. <laughs> Thanks You're for embracing it, not judging it. We're just we're just way. rolling with it. <laughs> Your close personal friend Scott Service didn't win the oh, American I League know. Manager of the Year. I mean, second place, and you know he's on first place the... loser. <laughs> okay, that's a nice spin zone. Uh, but it's your fault. I mean, you could have made it happen and you didn't. So um, yeah, uh, statement, please. Yeah, no, uh, that's exactly how I saw it too. I think that, um, you know, Scott service spoke, uh, once a week during the season with, uh, Jake Shannon and I, so I personally think that the responsibility could be shared between the three of us in terms of why he lost and why he was runner up. Um, you know, honestly, like I do accept full blame for this though, if we're being honest, because, uh, I was asking him some tough questions, some really good questions. Like, have you considered getting ejected more from games? <laughs> it might help with your branding. Like the really kind of like get to the core of the issue ones. And I think, um, you know, I think the uh, BBWAA uh, voters want someone a little softer. They don't want someone that can roll with the punches. You know what I mean? They, they want someone that, uh, that, that thinks about the brand first. And so they went with Kevin Cash. No, I, uh, I do feel bad for Scott. I think he deserved it. I think you can make a great case for cash, clearly, and many baseball uh, voters felt so. But I do think, and I saw Howdy tweeting about this, I do think it's interesting to go and look at the, the chapters of where the voters are coming from and see how many people, including for Seattle, how many people, like if that's your chapter you covered, you just, you watched that manager in those games more often and you had a completely different uh, take on what, who should who should have won. You would have thought our guy, John Paul Morosi, would have, uh, I don't know, had Scott Service a little higher up. Trader. He didn't. We love he him, but third. Trader. Trader, absolutely here. Um, okay, so how do we make Scott Service's brand better? I mean, leather jackets? Highlights. 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 I think maybe getting arrested. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, uh, I think like a, a viral, uh, like a viral moment, like getting in a fight with a photographer, something that, you know what I mean? Not like one of the game photographers, but like an, like a paparazzi kind of like TMZ. He needs a oh, TMZ okay. moment. I, it, the minute Scott service is on TMZ sports, we as a city have made it. 
Okay. We could, we could do this. I, I'm just going to loiter outside something that he's at because I have nothing better to do right now other than, than fight people. a little kitty cat. No, I'll just stand <laughs> outside and I'll put the camera in his face like, Scott, Scott, your thoughts on coming in second place to Kevin Cash, who only got oh the God. award because he, he would just be the like, team of fours. <laughs> well, and, and, I'm honored. Right. That's, that's, all, <laughs> that's, that's all, all I need. Do. That's all I need. That's um, all I would do. Uh, you mentioned highlights. So um, are highlights back for guys? Just real quick question. No. No, you should be able to do whatever you it is you want to do. No, no, no. You got to except tell for frosted tips. <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of people with highlights all of a sudden. Yeah, you know why? Well, there's nothing wrong with highlights in theory, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with expressing yourself however you want to express yourself. However, however, um, as a youth who grew up uh, and came of age in the uh, mid aughts, uh, so like two thousand five, six, seven, and then a little bit before that. Um, like the frosted tips to each their own. I can't. I wanted and, them so bad. I and you know, them. oh God. And uh, <laughs> it's it's specifically frosted tips with like spiked hair. And then like you have like a oh, yeah. fox racing or like and a, a puka DC. shell necklace. Heck yeah. Like a nice Volcom shirt. <laughs> and and what I'm noticing is among the youths today, I feel like a little bit of that scene is back, like the 2005 scene. And it's very weird to think that like there was a time when that was really outdated and now it's cool again among 18 year olds who were like born. <laughs> so they don't remember listening to, uh, God, who, who had Ohio is for lovers. That was a cut. I don't remember. I'm Maybe that sure. was the band. Maybe that was the band. I don't know. All I remember is that song was it. Everything is cyclical. I mean, short shorts are kind of back for guys, and short shorts for guys were completely frowned. They're totally back. I would say kind of back. I would say totally back. Got to show some thigh. Uh, Heck yeah. Skies out, thighs out. Yep. Uh, we'll move up from a thigh to uh, a butt. Uh, is Pete Carroll on the hot seat? Oh, um, no. I don't think seriously. I think in fan perspective, sure. I think the critique of him has grown. What's weird is like the critique of Pete Carroll was growing at a more rapid pace than critique of Russell Wilson. And then Russell Wilson, mostly because people felt like, oh, they're not using Russell Wilson to his full abilities and they're um, not succeeding as much in the postseason as opposed to succeeding in the regular season. And then Russell Wilson makes the comments that he did. And there's like that weird thing of his agent releasing the teams that he'd want to be traded to. And all of a sudden it like outpaced the Carol one where now they're like neck and neck. And it's, it's just, uh, I would say the, the conversations about whether or not Carol is the guy, whether or not he can modernize this team, whether or not he has too much control or, or whatever started a while ago, I think they've ratcheted up. Uh, with those Russell Wilson conversations, but I think his standing within the organization is safe. Whatever the public discourse might be, I don't think he's going anywhere. This is the first year where things have been a struggle for him with Russell Wilson. That's definitely affected by Russell Wilson being injured for a bit. I know as two people who spend a lot of time online and specifically on Twitter. Very there online. Is, there is a very, <laughs> very vocal group of people who seem to be a majority, but probably aren't who feel that the game has gone by Pete Carroll. I wouldn't go so far as to say that because no. the defense has improved this season, which I am surprised by. And I really like what you're getting out of the cornerbacks at the very least. But Russell Wilson was back under center. Uh, no pin, time to win. Uh, we, we hear on Saturday and Sunday, it's miraculous. 
that he's back out there. And now we look back at Sunday. And I mean, if you watch the game again, I don't know if it was him injured as much as it was him tentative out mm-hmm. there. And you got to point the finger at Russ. You pointed at Shane Waldron too. What do you think's going on with Russ? And how do you think the rest of the locker room looks at that? I don't know if you saw a tweet that Geno Smith had put Did. up. Oh, you know, I screenshot that. That was yeah. getting deleted. Screenshot it right away. Where it felt like maybe he believed, especially after the game he had against the Jaguars, that he could have been the starter for this game. He and should've. that the Russ that we saw on Sunday maybe wasn't as 100% as Russ he wasn't. To <laughs> yeah, no. Geno Smith's totally correct in thinking that. Uh, is Geno Smith correct in thinking he's the best quarterback in that quarterback no. room? No, I don't think so. But uh, would he have given the Seahawks a better shot to win that day? Yeah, in hindsight, I think that leading up to it, the team, it sounds like, had every reason to believe that Russell Wilson was healthy enough to play. And the things you were seeing weren't like Russell Wilson, like a, a ball coming out of his hands and and you're like, that didn't, where was that going? Like, that looked like, did he get hit? Like, when he re- released that, it was all over the place. It was just bad decision-making. Like, it's not the pass to lock it that looked ugly. It's the decision to pass to lock it and when he's in double coverage in the right. end zone. And I feel like he alluded Wilson to trying to draw DPI and see if they could move down the field. But why? Like, you have a, you have Alex Collins. You have, I think it was Freddie Swain, someone wide open, uh, like, 10 yards out and, um, and you just, he doesn't see him or he's not looking at him or I don't know what he's doing. So it's decision-making. I don't know if it's health, but, uh, I don't know how you prevent that going into it. That's mental. Like, how do you measure whether someone who has dealt with that just fine, how do you predict that they won't in this one? Cause that's on him. Like that loss is yeah. on his shoulders. Um, as far as the reaction in the locker room, I don't think people, I've never been a player. Uh, really? Oh, but, but I think that we've seen, uh, versions of really dysfunctional teams or dysfunction in a locker room with successful teams, like, like Percy Harvin and golden Tate getting into a fight the year that they went to a super bowl, like that week or whatever. I mean, like weird stuff happens and a good team can still succeed on the field. I don't, I don't know that that kind of weird stuff is happening in this locker room. I just think that winning makes relationships easier. And right now they're not winning. No doubt about that. And I started thinking back to Pete Carroll's time in new England, which is ages ago. And Pete's gotten way better as a coach. He has the USC years. He has the Seahawks years, of course, too. But when he was in new England, he was replacing Bill Parcells, who was a hard ass and mm-hmm. the style was different. And there's a lot of guys who didn't quite respond to him in the same way that maybe he thought that they could because he was trusting them and giving them a little bit more leeway. But when things don't go so well, I do wonder about what's happening behind the scenes. If they start winning, and I, I think they can, Stacey. I mean, you look at the schedule the rest of the way. Yes, they have those NFC West games, but other than that, I mean. Yeah, it's like the Lions. Real, yeah, the Texans. I mean, you've got <laughs> right. some you got some dumpster fires that you're going to be playing down the stretch. So I, I feel like they have a chance to pull back into it, but they're going to have to, start by winning on Sunday against a Cardinals team that has gotten off to a very good start, but dealing with a banged up Kyler Murray and might not have DeAndre Hopkins too. 
Yeah, the thing with the Cardinals is that defense is also really good. So it's yeah. not like you're going, it's not like you're going into a team where you're like, oh, they they don't have their greatest strength. Like, no, they're pretty solid, like all over the board or across the board. So I mean, they didn't uh, have yeah. Chandler Jones last year against you. And <laughs> now they have Chandler Jones. <laughs> now they have. Simmons is better, Buddha Baker. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer for Walk because he was also great uh yeah. there so far. He had been a good contributor. Yeah, I mean, I am kind of anticipating Murray will play. I think he was limited at practice and um I think that if you're them, you're looking at the Seahawks team thinking I can, I can win this game at 70%, which is a bummer. Like that's, that's so disheartening. Like I right. remember against the Steelers uh, ahead of that game, there was like a, an article is retweeted by like Bob Condota or something. And it was an article alluding to the Seahawks being a trap game from like a, like an SB nation Steelers blog or something. And I was like, this is the first time that I've been covering this team since 20, 14. And I was like, this is the first time I've read an article like this, the idea of the Seahawks being a trap game, uh, but deservedly. So they're 30th in total offense and 31st in defense. That's basic stats like total yardage. And the defense has taken a huge step forward because that's average throughout the year and not weighted, but it's gross. Like, yeah, it's one thing to look at a team and say, Hey, you know, this has been a weird season for you. You can bounce back chiefs. You can bounce back. You've got all this talent. Just figure out a way to take some attention away from Hill and Kelsey and, and spread the ball around. It's, I don't know how to fix some of what's going on on offense. And that's a problem because it looks ugly. very similar to last year too. In addition to being ugly, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's the same. I don't know if Russ is addicted to big plays, but it really feels like that because he's still looking deep downfield for mm. some of these guys. That game, at least against Green Bay, I mean, those interceptions. Yeah, no, a thousand he percent. He's really. I don't pushing. know that that's. I just don't know that that's the big issue. I think the big issue is Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson is making the 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 link between the Green Bay game, a couple moments this year also, and the second half of last year is Russell Wilson making weird decisions. Yeah, like trying to do too much. Uh, I don't think it. I, I feel like he gets, um, this isn't me defending Russell Wilson, like the person, but I feel like, uh, he gets a lot of a narrative about like, Oh, he wants to be MVP. So he's trying to make these plays. No, I just think genuinely sometimes he doesn't see plays or like he, he, he thinks that he can make the play and can't, it's not trying to do it for stats. It's like thinking you can take this into your own hands and then not doing it. And, uh, maybe you used to be able to, or maybe it's just a bad matchup and you need to think twice about that. I don't know what it is. I'm not a huge X's and O's expert. And so all I know is it feels very much like weird decision-making as opposed to like a personality change. I think actually he's been kind of the same person for a long time. And I think that uh, if you think that he's someone that's like really focused on his brand, yeah, that was like rookie Russell Wilson too. I don't know how to tell you guys, like he's kind of been the same guy. It's just his style is like, to his credit, significantly improved. No more Hawaiian shirts getting onto a bus looking like you work on Trader Joe's or something. But instead, uh, no, totally. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, one common denominator, if well, two, would be uh, some issues with protection up front and there's no run game. Yeah. Like, there's no run game. Also, a third one related to all of that is it's like they don't know how to fix those things. Do you run the ball more? Do you try whatever like scheme that Shane Waldron wants to run? It feels like last year, it felt like they wanted to move in two different directions with their offensive identity. And this year it's like, I know Carol wants to run the ball, but Alex Collins had, a, they had uh, 10 carries or whatever for or 11 for Collins last week. That hardly feels like a Pete Carroll game. 
That's a great point. And it felt like they could have run more Alex Collins in that game. A thousand percent. I mean, there were moments where I'm like, wait, I mean, he's looking pretty good. And he actually had less snaps than Travis Homer in the game, which, you know, Travis Homer is a guy you use in passing situations as you're blocking back. And there was a point where they were out of the game, so they couldn't probably run the ball to the same degree. But Collins, when he's been out there, has looked pretty good. And it's, to me, this is another reason, Stacey, why it feels a little similar to last year. It's that they're still throwing a lot and not running that much, even though they want, I think, deep down to be balanced. And yeah. how they get back to that, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't mind a uh I don't mind a split that favors passing because that's where I think their better weapons are right now. You don't have Chris Carson, you do have DK and Tyler. Yeah, those are your better weapons right now. But you still need to make the defense respect the run. Like you 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 can't go out there with no run game and expect to be successful. Like I truly, the teams that do that are teams that first of all, ran more than people give them credit for like Kansas city when they won the super bowl, but also they're heavy pass teams that have amazing like concepts, players, quarterback play wide receivers. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. they have a perfect pass game and a, a heavy pass game, they can pass like 66% of the time. And it works because they're doing things you've never seen before. And then they get figured out because people, uh, you know, know to cover two guys and without walk-ins, they don't have anyone else. Like they eventually they get figured out and you have to change and adapt. Kyler Murray versus Russell Wilson. We think it's going to happen on Sunday. Uh-huh. Who's better right now? Who's better this year? Right now, Kyler Murray is playing better. Kyler Murray started out looking like an MVP candidate. He's been injured. Uh, he hasn't had a game as ugly as Wilson had last week. Career-wise, I mean, Wilson... Oh, no doubt. Wilson has the career. It's not, not close. It's not and, close. And, and the thing is, and I see it so much, is like, I feel like if I go on air and say, Russell Wilson's a good quarterback, like objectively, objectively a good quarterback, I get so many people that are like, of course, you're like standing for Russell Wilson and defending him. And I'm like, you can... I think way too many people conflate. I wouldn't grab a beer with this guy, or I think that this guy's focused on image or, or you don't personally, whatever your issue is, conflate it with being a bad quarterback. And those two things are very much separate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if I were building my team moving forward, would I want a younger quarterback that is also great 10 times out of 10, I would always want a quarterback that is, young, that is younger. Um, if he's equally as good or has the potential to be as good. They're very similar team petite. Both of them Russell love is it. What, five eleven, and Kyler Murray is That's generous listed at five foot eight, which also might be generous. No, I think too. five, eight is, I think five, eight is fair. What should he list on his dating profile? Kyler Murray. He's five. Foot I think eight. you need to, here's the thing. I think people need to list their true heights on their dating profile. Everyone thinks that they're, true heights listed on the dating profiles aren't the actual height. I feel like that Facts. is that is assumed. Like if so, but, if, but see, put, if everyone starts to do, so if you put 5'11", how tall are you? 5'11". So if yeah. you say 5'11", people are going to look at it and be like, he's 5'9", which there's nothing wrong with that, but I get it. People are going to assume, but it's because everyone does it. If everyone stops doing it, and if we all just, just say the truth, just, just who cares, then then, you know, pe that'll stop happening. People will really like, believe though, you. I, I, so I list at six feet tall because one I'm, time I was measured as six feet tall, one time, and okay. I'm like 5'11", a little plus. Uh, 
but a lot of people will say, oh, Paul's five ten, five nine. Am I sensitive about it? Probably more so than I actually should be. But I don't think people should be sensitive about it, even though I very much am. And so I know that's why everyone, you're laughing at me right now. I mean, no, no, everyone's everyone's sensitive about a this thousand stuff. percent. Uh, and, and it is one of the funny things that I, I find on dating apps because I do think that everyone is probably saying something different about height. And there are some people that have these these profile prompts that say six feet or above. If you're not, talk to me. Yes, yes. You see accounts like this, Stacey. This is this is not, this is a two way street in terms of meanness. I, and things you can't control. Yeah, I I've considered lying about mine before. I haven't done it though because I'm like, then what? You know what I mean? Like, and and that's like, so you show up and they're going to be like, you're you're clearly not as tall as you said you were. Like then then where do you think it's going to go, right? Yeah. And if you match with someone who's, I'm very short, I might not be able to tell the difference between 5'11 or six foot. But if you match with someone that's like 5'9, five, 5'10, five, and you said you were 6'2 and you show up and you guys are the same height, that person's going to be like, one of Man. us is lying. <laughs> I wonder if people are going four inches. Like, you got to be careful. You got to at the very least. I think that, you know what I think sometimes happens? I think sometimes people genuinely think they're taller than they are. I think people know so little about height. I've had so many people tell me I'm five, two measured by a doctor, a physician, a qualified, professionally educated physician with a PhD measured me at five foot two. Okay. I cannot tell you how many people think I'm like four ten, which is whatever. But like, I think that people have this inflated sense of like how tall they really think they are. Where one of my favorite things ever is Alessa, one of my friends who, you know, Paul and anyone listening does not, but she's like five, nine. And this guy was this, this guy who was thought that he was like five eleven, same height as her. was like, kept telling her we were all out. He was like, no, you're, you're not really fucked. You you're mistaken. And it was so rich to hear this guy just be (laughs) so convinced that he was taller than he was, that he is telling someone like, you're actually not that size. So no, you should go to a doctor. <laughs> I mean, I, I know we all have I think COVID. he really believed it. We all have COVID-19 vaccine cards. Maybe we all need like, this is my official height card. And then everyone's good. Going or forward. we just collectively, I, I'm trying to collectively just make us all stop caring about it. Like let's, nope, let's just possible. try to stop caring about it. I need to care about it less. I'm trying to too. make a, I'm trying to joke about it more often. So I, so I get less sensitive about it. I think everyone should should just embrace it. You are who you are. You are who you are. Mm-hmm. Here are some fun Kyler Murray facts. This one okay. actually makes me angry. He wore a pink pinstripe suit to draft day because okay. of his favorite movie. Do you know what his favorite movie is? Legally Blonde? No. And that would be respectable, in my opinion. What's his favorite, favorite movie? The Great Gatsby starring Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio, which in my opinion is one of the biggest letdowns that I've ever seen in a movie because it was just a giant CGI DUI. Thank you for making that face. That movie sucked. It was terrible, awful, bad. And that is Kyler Murray's favorite movie. In fact, I think that's a character flaw for Kyler Murray. And I still believe that even though I like watching him play, that if your favorite movie is The Great Gatsby, there is something wrong with you. It's, uh, it's okay if your favorite book or story, whatever, Maybe it can good. be one of your favorites. The book's great. Maybe it can be one of your favorites. I felt like that was kind of disappointing. I am personally disappointed in Kyler Murray. 
I think Legally Blonde would have been a great answer. That was a great answer, a throwback as well. I'd be like, oh, yeah. he likes uh, old school <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. And who was the other person in that movie? I forget. Bella McFella Pants. I confuse everybody and all. Luke Wilson? Oh yeah, Luke Wilson, yeah. Mm -hmm. Not Owen Wilson. Yeah. His dream destination. Owen could never. <laughs> Owen could never. He wishes. Wow, wow. Too busy filming Mark. Oh, wow. And lawyer. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Kyler Murray's dream destination is London. So perhaps future quarterback of the London. That's Digimus. neat. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Uh, his favorite actor is Bruce Lee. Shout out Seattle. Okay. Yeah. Down for that. He is a vegan or at least was at one point. Okay. Could you ever. You're judging that? someone for. No, but. I'm not judging. I'm too lazy to find other protein sources. <laughs> really hard. I had a friend. My in problem. College. And you have to eat so much of it. Exactly. You have to eat so much of like tofu and beans and you eat beans whatever like else you're eating. Yeah. I mean, one of my it's friends was doing it in college and he was a big guy. He was like six foot two, I would say probably about 200 pounds and stuff. And he worked out and he was just eating beans out of a can. Like I would just come home and he was so weird. It's probably good. These I mean, things. It's probably a really healthy lifestyle that I am not, I don't care enough about my life to take up. <laughs> Uh, last fun Kyler Murray fact. He won the chess club tourney in fourth and fifth. Oh, grade. I love that. I love that. He was the original Queen's Gambit, a right. movie, a show inspired by Kyler Murray's journey. Yep. And uh, he, you know, won these things as opposed to, you know, not winning a spelling bee. <laughs> what, you Again. know that? <laughs> Probably. It, uh, 1999, maybe 99. I don't know. I was in uh fifth grade. Okay. I don't know. So that, that was late nineties. Was that your most traumatic experience in, uh, early adulthood as far as you wanted to win something and you weren't quite able to get it done? Not my most traumatic experience, but one that I remember to this day, because it was the first time I was introduced to the concept that the authority figures that are supposed to protect you will fail you. <laughs> Wait, who is this authority figure? The judge? <laughs> the, the, moder the moderator, the proctor, whatever. She told me my word was familiar with an R in it. Um, and I wasn't one to question authority. So I said FR because I'm in fifth grade. And then I, and then I was done. And then Jeff Benson won, even though he didn't deserve it. Fucking Jeff. I'm truly like, it's <laughs> appalling to this day. I look back and I'm like, how, how was that allowed to continue? It was a sham spelling bee <laughs> is sham. what it was. <laughs> a complete sham. Uh, my spelling bee highlight of my life was that in the local, um, newspaper, the Hanover Mariner. I want to say this was 1996 or 1997 or 1998. I made this article about the spelling bee, even though I was out in round two, because I did a touchdown dance after my uh, getting the first word right. And I forget which word I screwed up. I don't know if oh, like, so you got an unnecessary or you got an unsportsmanlike. No, I didn't get an unsportsmanlike. They just thought I was like funny or cute or something. They're like, look at this kid. He came and he, he lost in the second round and he's dancing. I don't oh, know. man. Oh, no. Just dab now. Dab. Oh, no, stop. <laughs> uh, so let's go back to the actual Cardinals. Um, they were the league's last undefeated team. 
They're still going to come at me with bird facts. <laughs> yeah. Cardinals, red. All right, let's get to what actual Cardinals. So do they sing? I don't know. <laughs> Here's my question about Cardinals. Why do so many sports teams have them as a nickname? Because they're these little tiny birds. Uh, my cat yeah. asleep right there, very cute, Aria, could kill a Cardinal because she's bored. I, I think Cardinals are a pretty bird, but they're just red sparrows. And at the very least, sparrows are vicious creatures. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever read anything about what sparrows do to other sparrow nests if they find I one. I don't. They're, they're, they're evil. I, I've never understood Cardinals. Yeah, I don't know. It's like a classic mascot, right? Like it's been yeah. used forever. So uh, I did see a tweet the other day that said that the all-time record between cat teams and bird teams is currently even. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, after the Panthers right beat some team. Cardinals? Wasn't the no, no, I forget. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so, anyways, it's uh, just a common mascot. I don't know. I mean, a bird mascot, but specifically a cardinal. Do you respect them? I think going into the year, I had questions about them just because of the fact that Cliff Kingsbury is their head coach. And while I find him to be handsome and dreamy mm -hmm. and very fashionable, for sure, I look at him as a head coach and I'm like, I can't take you seriously because you're too handsome and because I feel like the Cardinals could have been better last year and the year before. And yet, yeah, there's been something missing and I'm not exactly sure what it is. And look, they they've gotten off to a great start this year, but there's there's something about them that I feel like is missing. And I feel like I'm going to need to see them beat the Seahawks on Sunday to finally be someone willing to say, I respect the Cardinals for beating the 30 30th ranked yeah. offense. Yeah. That it's going to take, um, I, you know what I think it is. I'm trying to think if there's another example of this. I think for a while, maybe the Titans were like this. Uh, was it when the Colts were always, uh, winning the division? Gosh, I forget, but it's just one of those teams where it's like, even in their best years with the exception of their trip to the Super Bowl And, um, and then, uh, their, their loss to green Bay in, I think the NFC championship. No, that can't have been right. Um, I forget what year that was. Yeah, yeah. When was it the NFC Championship? We're talking because Bruce Arians' years here. It can't have been. It can't have been. Um, maybe divisional round. They had the um, one team that that made it to the NFC Championship against the Panthers, and the Panthers right. beat the Seahawks that year, and right, the Panthers right. destroyed the Cardinals in that game. So they've that was had, the last Carson Palmer year, I think. They've they've fielded great teams. The problem for them has been one they're in a division that's really tough where like even in their best years, another team has been better. Like you go back and look at like when the Seahawks were dominating or uh, maybe the, the Rams were at the top or whatever. And the Cardinals in only some of those years have had really bad records. Like there's been years when they've had like 11 wins and have like missed the playoffs or like 10 wins and missed the playoffs. And um, it's just kind of being little brother in a conference for a while that's been stacked and not only that, but that's been stacked enough to like have multiple teams make regular playoff appearances, which is uh, nice. Right. Cause it's, yeah. it, it's uh, it makes it interesting. But I think the other thing has been like, you haven't won a super bowl and you, you, uh, I don't know. There's, there's always like a lot of 
excitement and expectations that they've they've failed to fulfill so many times that I think people it's a wait and see team until they prove otherwise. And right now I'm, I'm buying it. I'm like, no, they genuinely like a solid team. I fully expect them to be in the postseason. Like I expect them to win the division at this point, too. probably over the Rams. Um, but I don't blame anyone for taking the wait and see approach with, with that team because of just the history of the franchise, like big season move, big off season moves that don't pay off, but like times a million because it's over and over. <laughs> She is Stacy Rost. She is. That's how I'm ending it. Well, do you <laughs> long, want me to ask something else? Out, convoluted. No, it was just at, like midway you know through my. No, we'll end no. Something else. We'll end it up was something midway, else. midway through my answer. I was like, "This is a dumb answer. I'm just gonna keep going." Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> Interview me now. Okay. Is that the like little platform behind you? Is mm. that is that for you or Aria? <laughs> that is for Aria. <laughs> Okay. And the funny thing about this platform, which I think you're referring to right here yes. to yeah. my right, is that every now and then, Arya, who is a little heavier than she used to be, she's will jump fatty. up on it. Yeah, she's, you know, look at her over there. All she does is Look, she's put day. on the COVID pounds, just like all of us. It, it, she definitely has. Every now and then, she will jump up on that thing, and it will, like, tip nice. a little over. Nice. And she will end up clinging to it like she is. Like the perseverance uh, poster. Yeah. Right. Hang in there. Yeah, exactly. The hang in there poster. Wow. Love it. Stacy Rost, Jake and Stacy, 10 to 2, every day, 710 ESPN Seattle. Stacy, always a pleasure. Let's do it again soon. Yes. Here's to God and football and good friends living large in Texas. I don't have friends. I got family. Texas forever. It's been a while since I talked about the Astros. Justin Verlander's back in the fold. He signed a one-year, $25 million deal with a player option for the exact same amount of money for the 2023 season. He had turned down an $18.4 million qualifying offer. And this is coming off of a Tommy John surgery that kept him out of the entirety of the 2021 season and also saw him miss the end of the 2020 year. During 2020, he has the injury. He tried to delay Tommy John's surgery as long as possible for a potential return at the end of the year. It doesn't happen, so he has to miss all of the next year. But there's been a little bit of controversy on those mean internet streets about Justin Verlander. Some people think that Verlander, because he was throwing 96 in a simulation, I think it was right after the World Series, that maybe he would have been healthy enough to actually pitch in the playoffs in the World Series, but he didn't really care to get back out on the field. He was thinking about the contract, the money, et cetera, et cetera. There are others that are pointing to a story that took place during the playoffs. Quote, Astros players revolted when Justin Verlander was scheduled to throw out the ceremonial first pitch during the postseason, telling owner Jim Crane they preferred someone else considering Verlander had not been around all season. And before the Justin Verlander contract had happened. I think there were a lot of people out there that were already spin zoning the possibility that Verlander would be on another on another team like the New York Yankees or the Boston Red Sox. I'm just saying random teams that have a whole lot of money off the top of my head. Now those all of those conversations have completely gone to the side. I have a couple of points on this. First off when it comes to Justin Verlander getting back out there and pitching in the playoffs. Far be it from me to demand that someone in their late 30s rush himself back. In fact, I wouldn't do it. 
if that guy's going to be a free agent going into the offseason and you're trying to prod that guy back onto the mound and not take his sweet time with recovery, aren't you basically just saying bye and then locking the door behind you for a possible Verlander return? Yes is the answer. And for those who also felt like, okay, maybe Verlander would have been able to pitch in the postseason, what do we know about pitchers? Have you ever watched pitchers in spring training and how a lot of them will end up getting shelled their first couple of outings? They need a lot of time to get themselves back into form. It's a weird job that involves making weird motions, whipping your arm at extremely high velocities to to deliver a ball 90 feet to home plate. It's a difficult job. And it's one that they take their sweet time getting themselves back into form with. Had Verlander come back at the end of the year, you would have seen Verlander essentially in spring training form. And I don't know that you would want to see that happen. I don't think that you would want to see Verlander throw him into crunch time situations as he is slowly working his way back. So maybe he would have been able to pitch, but the kind of pitching that you expect out of Justin Verlander is ace stuff, regardless of his age. You throw him back out there at the end of the year after he's coming off of a Tommy John surgery, the sad reality is he's not going to be the guy that you want him to be, that you need him to be in the playoffs. And that might have cost you a game in the American League Championship Series, in the World Series. I don't know the specifics as far as when he was able to go, but I doubt that he would have been able to go in the way that you wanted. And to that conversation about him not being there in the clubhouse in the locker room all season long, weird to an extent, but pitchers are different. Pitchers are weird. Pitchers are isolated, removed from... A team, and you know, when you're someone that's Justin Verlander's age, even if you have played with a lot of these guys who you won the World Series with in 2017 and have been around them for a while, and maybe you should make your face seen in the clubhouse a little bit more. Honestly, if I were in issues, I think I would at the very least go to the clubhouse every now and then just to check in with the guys. But it is weird when you're injured. It's weird. And if you're in your late 30s and you've been pitching for a really long period of time and you're Justin fucking Verlander, are you really going to come back in? to the clubhouse like, and, and feel obligated to come back into the clubhouse, put yourself in his shoes just for a second. I, I, I don't think you would. Now, I know that if I were in his shoes, I would like to think that I would change that. I would be different. But pitchers are weird. They're kind of like kickers. They're just removed from the team and go about doing their own thing. They pitch once every five games. Sure, they're in the clubhouse and hanging out with the guys in between games, but it, it is a different job. And when you also are coming off of a Tommy John surgery and you know you're not going to pitch over the course of the year, I can understand why the guy wouldn't be around the team that much. Now, I can also understand why there might be some sour feelings over that, but as soon as that guy's back out on the mound this coming season, is anyone going to hold that resentment? Is that resentment going to continue? No. The guy's been, when he's with the Astros, one of the best pitchers in baseball. That might not continue going forward, but... All these sour feelings or, or weirdness or, or any possibility of controversy going forward, I think it's done. He's back in the fold, and the Astros' rotation its looking pretty good. Let me put it to you this way. I'm putting this whole fucking town in my rear view. You don't turn your back on family. 
I know that a lot of you are probably annoyed already that I was rubbing my nipples to the New England Patriots dominant win over the Atlanta Falcons on Thursday night, but I want to pause and on a serious note, talk about something that I think is really hard to do, but we're not willing to admit that it's hard to do. Building a roster in the NFL is really difficult. And I think we all assume it's easy. It's not. Take a look at John Schneider and the Seattle Seahawks and some of the missed draft classes over the last couple of years. But then go all the way back to the draft class that he had in 2012. Some of the players that he brought in in 2011. It is hard year in, year out to find guys who can contribute and play and be long-term pieces for your team. Bill O'Brien, meanwhile, for those of my listeners that are listening from Houston, probably gave a masterclass in what not to do as a general manager, as a roster constructor. But there's been a lot of criticism, and I think deserved, towards Bill Belichick for what he has done as a general manager over the last couple of years. And this offseason... The Patriots were very different. They spent a lot of money in free agency. They drafted a quarterback in the first round. They did a lot of things that we haven't seen from them in a really long time. But now that the Patriots have won five in a row, it's very clear why it's happened. Not just because of Bill Belichick, the coach, but Bill Belichick, the general manager, hit a home run with what he did this offseason. They signed Matthew Judon, who might have been the most impactful defensive free agency signing this offseason. He's been incredible. They signed Hunter Henry, the tight end who has made Mac Jones' job so much easier in the red zone. They drafted Mac Jones in the first round, fifth quarterback off the board. They drafted Christian Barmore in the second round, a defensive lineman who has been incredible for the Patriots to this point. They drafted running back Ramondre Stevenson in the fourth round, and my God, that guy has been an unbelievable player this year. They traded back for Trent Brown from the Las Vegas Raiders, who had been there for a couple of years. He has helped stabilize an offensive line that still is dealing with some issues. And it's not to say that every single thing that Belichick's done this offseason has worked out. Jonu Smith's been really inconsistent. Nelson Aguilar, though competent, is being overpaid. But then throw in Kendrick Bourne, who has played really well this year. Belichick's done a hell of a job this offseason. And while a lot of people were 100% right in giving him shit for not being able to put together a good roster, especially for the 2020 season, he has completely turned everything on its head in just a couple of months this offseason. And right now you look at the Patriots, it's a five-game winning streak. They still have to play real teams. They're going to play Tennessee, but it's a Tennessee team without um, Derrick Henry um, in about a week and a half. They have two games in three weeks against Buffalo, and that's, I think, really when we're going to figure out just how good this Patriots team is. But what he has done this offseason has transformed the team overnight from a team that honestly stunk. Seven and nine, I don't even think that's really a true indication of who the Patriots were last year. But right now, I mean, it's a seven and four football team that has a couple of losses this year, the Bucks, the Cowboys, where you're wondering, the, the Dolphins too, where you're wondering, all right, what would have happened if a couple of plays go a little bit differently? And it's because of what Belichick's done with the roster. 
Big thanks to everybody who tuned into today's episode of the Galan Says Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating, a nice little review, maybe even a roast along the way. If you got any questions that you want to have answered on the show, says at gmail.com is how you call in. And you can also call into the Galant phone line. The number for that is 781-452-4322. Again, 781-452-4322. So long, farewell, have yourselves a wonderful weekend. And we'll be back at it on Tuesday.